Greetings. Welcome to Witnesses of the King. Witnesses of the King, I welcome you for, thank you for being here with us. We have an opportunity to explore in Acts chapter 9 today. And we're building up to, we're going to spend several sessions in Acts chapter 10, a very pivotal chapter indeed of all the New Testament. And today we're going to spend a little time in chapter 9 following Peter and his ministry. And what we find is in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, we have a summary statement. And if you're paying attention to your study of the book of Acts, you'll find that uh, Luke often has these summary statements where he ends uh, a short account of something very specific, and then he kind of backs up and makes a general statement about how things are going in the church. And Acts 9.31 is one of those. After talking all about the conversion of Saul, and the fact that Saul then ministered in Damascus and in Jerusalem, and then ended up going to uh, Caesarea and uh, on beyond to Tarsus. After closing that chapter out, so to speak, then Luke comes, gives us a summary statement of the church's situation like this. He says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. So we're talking about how the church is multiplying through this time and how the church indeed is being built up. And so they were experiencing a time of relative peace, a time in which uh, we're going to see the Apostle Peter spending some time traveling through the, the various uh, areas around and outside of Jerusalem to minister to the churches there. And what we're going to see, if uh, you'll join me here on a slide here that we have, uh, this right here is a map, general map of the area. And with Peter, he was in Samaria ministering last we heard. He presumably went back to Jerusalem. And from there, he goes down to Lydda, which is kind of the, to the northwest uh, toward the Mediterranean Sea. And then he, uh, in this account, is going to continue on to Joppa. And then in chapter 10, he's going to be contacted by some Gentiles from Caesarea that are going to uh, bring him to Caesarea. And so this is an account of how far Peter is traveling here. And you can see from the scale, this is not particularly far, Lydda being maybe 12 to 15 miles from Jerusalem, another uh, 10 miles or so to Joppa. So these are fairly short trips. Uh, and this is all in the land that is still comprised of mostly Jewish people, of course, under Roman rule. So here we have a summary of Peter's apostolic ministry. He visited believers, and that's the first thing I want you to notice here in verse 32, which is where we'll begin reading shortly, but it says, Here is now Peter went here and there among them all, that is speaking of all the believers in that area. He came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, Bedridden, etc. So we'll get into all that momentarily. But notice it's among them all. It's to the saints. It's to the believers that are already there that he's ministering. No doubt fulfilling the part of the Great Commission of the teaching. So we make disciples by baptizing and teaching them to obey all things that Jesus commanded. And that was fundamental aspect of making disciples. In fact, the primary thing, that's the primary thing we saw in the early church in Jerusalem way back in chapter 2 where we saw they were dedicated to the apostles' teachings. So there were believers here probably because of the believers on the day of Pentecost and then spreading later because of the persecution from Jerusalem. So we know that Philip came through this area after his encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8. 
So now there's already believers here. Peter shows up ministering to them. And what we're going to see today is a progression from healing a man to raising a woman from the dead. And that builds us up toward chapter 10, when God is going to make a great statement about the gospel now going to the Gentiles. And so the succession of increase is what we see, healing to resurrection to eternal life. And this is a beautiful way to outline this part of Acts chapter 9. So let's pick it up here in verse 32 and let's read through together as we see this. It says, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, saying, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Well, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we praise your name this day, and we thank you for bringing us together, Lord. We thank you for your word, for this account of your servant Peter and what he did. And Lord, we praise you for the great work and great care that you have for your people. We praise you for healing Aeneas. We praise you for raising up Tabitha. And Lord, we pray this day that we would have great understanding of this, that we would understand what it is you would have us to learn, to gain from this. Tell us about yourself and show yourself to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that's a, a powerful thing that we see there, a great account of God really caring for his church. Peter came to Lydda, like I said, about 20, 25 miles from Jerusalem, and found a man bedridden for eight years. This man was paralyzed. And why mention eight years? Well, as you know, the author of, Luke, of Acts is Luke. And Luke was a physician. And Luke seems to bring us many good details when it relates to the health of a person or an illness or something of that nature. And so Luke is cluing us in. He was uh, bedridden for eight years. Now, what does that mean? Well, to be paralyzed is generally a nervous system issue. You can heal the nervous system issue, but if someone has been bedridden for eight years, they're going to have extreme apathy in all their limbs. It's going to be very, very unlikely that this man is going to be able to stand and walk after eight years, even if suddenly his nervous system problem was solved. So this is a great healing because it instantly makes the man whole. He is able 
to stand. He's able to make his bed. He's able now to function in a normal way, even though he had been paralyzed for these eight years, the whole while his body, uh, those muscles breaking down for lack of use. Jesus Christ is the one that heals him, according to Peter. That's what it says there in, in, uh, in the verses that we looked at. And then the result is very interesting. All the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Not just a town, but in essence, kind of the whole county. This was this fertile plain that was along the Mediterranean area known as Sharon. And so that brings us then the topic of healing. And one of the things we want to talk about is what are the purposes of healing or the purposes of miracles in general, including raising from the dead. Let's take a look at a couple of those. First of all is uh, very simply this, uh, the endorsement of the message. First pur purpose would be the endorsement of the message. Recall in Matthew chapter 9 when Jesus healed a paralytic, he says something very provocative about why he did these signs. And this gives us a clue as to the purpose of miracles, of signs and wonders in the ministry of Jesus and in the ministry of the apostles. It says there in Matthew chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, for which is easier to say? See, the friends had brought him. He was teaching in a house that was very busy, and these people brought their paralyzed friend that they could not get through the door. There were so many people. So they went up on the roof, broke through the roof of the house, and lowered this man down to Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. Well, right away, the, the leadership, the leaders that were with him, they're like, who can forgive sins except God himself? Well, that's exactly the point. Look how Jesus responds to them. He says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise pick up your bed and go home. And so this is Jesus very clearly saying that he was doing this for the purpose of showing his authority, the authority of God alone to forgive sins. And indeed, he appeals to this other times as well. Look in John chapter 10, uh, verses 37, 38. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. In other words, the, the works should make us able to know and understand that the Father is in him and he is in the Father. The signs endorsed the message. The message was believed or not believed. It was accepted or rejected. But the signs and wonders merely pointed to that message itself. Those that accept the message, the signs become an encouragement, an endorsement of the message itself. For those that reject it, well, they'll merely explain them away somehow. And look at sometimes the Pharisees accuse Jesus of doing his signs and wonders by the power of Satan, which Jesus, of course, responds to and shows the foolishness of such a statement. But the message is always the primary Thing. The signs are merely to reinforce the message. Look how Mark summarizes this at the end of his gospel 
as he talks about how the early church goes on. He says, they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. See, the primary thing is the preaching. Secondary to that is attesting to it by these miraculous signs. So this was also when we, they began to encounter some difficulties in the beginning of the book of Acts. I want to remind you and take you back there for a moment when Peter and John had been arrested for healing a man uh, and creating quite a ruckus in the temple because of it. They were brought in before the authorities, and of course they said before the authorities, uh, which is better, that we obey you or obey God? So they leave it very clear where they stand on the issue. Once they got back together with the rest of the believers, they had a prayer meeting, and it was a beautiful prayer meeting, a wonderful prayer meeting about the work of God and what he was doing with them. But look at how they entreat God in chapter 4, verses 29 and 30. They say, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So in other words, the primary, make us bold to continue speaking your word. And secondarily, you keep sending those signs and wonders to confirm our message. And so the primary purpose of healing here is the endorsement of the message. There's also an issue, of course, of uh, compassion, just plain mercy and compassion of the Lord. See, if we look at the man's situation who was paralyzed, it was obvious an accident or a disease had taken this from him, for he's referred to as a man, and he had been in this condition for eight years. So no doubt some part of his life, some part of his productive life, was spent as someone who was functional, was working, and then accident or disease took this from him. He grew up, he perhaps learned a trade, he perhaps worked in the community, but now it's all been taken from him. This is a great act of compassion of the Lord Jesus to heal this man. The local congregation needed this man. Think about your local congregation and how badly they need godly men for the work of the ministry. And how was it that he was healed exactly? Who called for Peter? It was the other disciples, the members of the local congregation. This is how we care for one another as believers. This is how we love one another, the command that Jesus gave to us. We are called to love one another, and Jesus has often moved with compassion to heal, and here he does exactly that. This man's healed in the name of Jesus, which means according to the will of Jesus, for we can do nothing if it's outside the will of Jesus. A member of the body of Christ there in Lydda was hurting. This man was burdened, and he was a burden. But he was healed, and for his benefit and the benefit of the body of Christ. Jesus heals for great compassion. It's most important, however, that we be eternally healed, forgiven of sin, born again, brought to life, but then to flourish with his people while we are still here. Well, this brings up a question that you'll hear very often, and the question is simply this, does God still heal? 
Well, let me first answer that by not answering it. If somebody asks me, does God still heal? I say all healing is from God. And generally they'll, they'll clarify and they say, I mean, does he still miraculously heal? And I will argue all healing is miraculous because theologically, think about this. What does the Bible say about our situation? Every single one of us is under sin. All of us have sinned and the wages of sin is death. So every day we live, literally every breath we take is the mercy of God to put off that death sentence for us. But what most really mean by asking this question is they're asking this, does he still do it this way for his church? In other words, should we expect to go out and perform these kind of miracles as we share the gospel in order to have our message affirmed? Well, the purpose of healing was to endorse the message. Where's the message now? The message is now contained in the Word of God. It's codified as Scripture. And all through the New Testament is the importance of the Word of God to bring about salvation. It is a necessity in bringing about salvation for people. So where then should we expect to find the endorsements of that message of the Gospel? They are also there in the Word of God. Not only has the gospel been preserved, the message itself, but these signs and wonders that we just read out of the Word of God, they are also codified in the Word of God for us. The purpose of healing to endorse the message and the vast majority of people that have been saved over the last 2,000 years were saved with zero first-hand sight of miraculous healings. They simply are not necessary for the salvation of a soul. The Holy Spirit and the Word of God are necessary for the salvation of a soul, along with the response and the proper response being repenting and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. But nowhere in those formulas that we see for how salvation has worked in a human being is it necessary for us to see a sign. But God can certainly, if he wants to, heal someone out of the ordinary. But the salvation is always the priority. Let me illustrate this to you as I should from Scripture. Look at how James talks about this. Late in his letter, he approaches this issue of prayer. And he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. In the New Testament, there is a connection of the physical health of a congregation and their walk with God. Paul points this out early in uh, 1 Corinthians, and it seems to be a general trend. But for the most part, what we see is the emphasis is on salvation. James deviates from what we expect him to say. Right back here, we expect it to say in verse 15, and the prayer of faith will heal the one who is sick. But James doesn't say heal. He says save. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And we say, okay, well, we'll give him. He can use that word to mean heal. But then he goes on and makes it very clear what he's talking about. The Lord will raise him up 
in the resurrection. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And so the emphasis here is on the salvation, on being healed of the sin problem. Being saved is James' emphasis here. And so this teaches us very clearly that we are to have a gospel priority, that salvation is the number one thing. We deal with salvation first, then pray for physical healing. For salvation is far more important than temporal healing. Total healing is coming to all who believe in the resurrection. All who believe will be completely 100% healed of every ailment, finally and perfectly and permanently. Dorcas was a believer. Aeneas was a believer before Peter came along and healed the one and raised the other. Does God still heal? Well, yes, absolutely. But don't expect to have a ministry based upon it. Peter did not have a ministry that was healing based. With him, you'll find many more mentions of him preaching the word than healing. Paul was the same way, and there are many parallels between the two. As you read the book of Acts, you can kind of overlay their stories. Paul did not have a healing ministry. Paul had a gospel ministry, sometimes accompanied by these miraculous healings. James did not have a healing ministry. James had a healing of proclamation. Think back to Acts chapter 6, when the early church had uh, kind of their first bump in the road on the sharing of all things, the Hellenists weren't receiving their distribution of food like the Hebrew women. The issues brought before the apostles and they said, hey, it wouldn't be appropriate for us to set aside the, the ministry of the word and prayer in order to wait tables. They said word and prayer. They saw their priorities as spreading the gospel truth and praying healings not making their list. But yet, even some of the deacons that were chosen are mentioned as doing these signs and wonders, but they were always secondary to the preaching. What we have in the book of Acts is the gospel being preached and occasional signs of healing to accompany it. So we must cover salvation first. And I want to phrase it like this for you. Maybe this is something you can uh, remember easily. Pray for healing prepare for eternity. Pray for healing, prepare for eternity. It's far more important as we minister to one another when we find ourselves hurting and sick and, and in great difficulty as we come together. Yes, pray for the healing and God may pray you. But most importantly, make sure of one another's salvation. Challenge one another with that. Preach the gospel to one another as you minister to one another. This healing was a very powerful testimony to the authenticity of Peter's teaching and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But a greater one comes next the, after this healing is resurrection. So if we go back to the text in Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 36, Peter goes to uh, across the coastal plain of Sharon there to Joppa. Uh, right there on the coast, and this disciple named Tabitha, which means gazelle, uh, she had died. And she had been a tremendous asset to the congregation there. She was full of good works and acts of charity. She seemed to have been a widow 
for there are several widows there to mourn her, and there's no mention of a husband. So she apparently had been making garments for them as her ministry. That's why these widows are there, and they're showing the garments to Peter, look at what she used to do. And so this was a valuable member of the, the ministry team there in Joppa. Now she's in an upper room. Peter sends everyone out. And that should sound a little familiar to you as Jesus raised a girl from the dead once in a similar kind of way. He's sending everyone out and, and him and just the three disciples, John and James and Peter, were there. So Peter's seen this before. Peter prays and a girl raises from the dead. And the result is that many came to believe. It became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. What this shows us, this resurrection, this beautiful care for this one that had passed, to bring her back with us so that she can continue her good works, continue to glorify God, continue in the presence of those that were there. This shows that Jesus has the power and the authority to give life. If you really want to understand the connection between Jesus Christ and life itself, you go to the Gospel of John because life there, and specifically eternal life, is a very key concept all through his Gospel. Look what it says in John chapter 1 here as he introduces it by introducing Jesus himself, the Word of God. He says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was was the light of men. So Jesus is the creator. And as we find out elsewhere in the Bible, he's the sustainer of all things. He's the one that holds all this together. He is the one through whom all these things were made, including life itself. And so it is to him we go with our life problems. When healing is needed, you go to Jesus. When death is there and is in the house, we go to Jesus about these things. He is the great giver of life. Look how he says of himself in John chapter 11, when his friend Lazarus had died, Jesus says to his sister, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus even ties his life and his faith in Jesus Christ into the very purpose of his gospel. When he begins to summarize and close up the gospel at the end, he says this in John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What's written? These signs. Jesus did many other signs. Look at verse 30. In the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John clearly was not taking for granted that his audience would be seeing miraculous signs and wonders. He accounted these in his gospel so that it would add and make us able to believe in Jesus Christ. And so this is powerful how this puts into perspective the signs and wonders. In this gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ that we as Christians have the privilege to take to the world, we offer no less than life itself. And that has to be the, most, the foremost message 
of our gospel, the very first thing in our minds when we share it. Because what that does is when we make the gospel issue a life issue, it elevates it above everything else. Too many churches out there and too many people are peddling a gospel of life improvement. Come to Jesus, he'll make your life better. Come to Jesus and you'll have blessings and you'll receive and you'll have more income and you'll receive promotion. You'll have peace in your household. You'll have happy kids. And they offer all these things and all those things are great things. And let me tell you, some of those things are a natural byproduct of knowing Jesus Christ, not because a quid pro quo that he's giving you. No, it's simply getting your life in order. The Holy Spirit giving you mastery over sin and blessings naturally coming into your life by living it in accord with the created reality of Jesus Christ. And so, but that's secondary. All those things are secondary to life itself. And in John's gospel, again and again, Jesus is imploring, come to me so that you might have life. And those that come to him, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of the will of man, but of the will of God himself. In other words, something that will not go away, something that will not perish, life that cannot be taken. Jesus has the power to give life, and he has passed that power to his church through the proclamation of the gospel. Not so that we can run around and do resurrections, but so that we can go and proclaim the gospel, pointing to the word of God and saying, look at this Jesus. This Jesus has the power of life in his hands. This Jesus indeed can save you from your sins. Now, I want to point out just one more thing. If you go into the gospel of Luke and you look in uh, Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells about a rich man and a poor man that died. The poor man's name was Lazarus. He was a beggar outside the rich man's house. And late in that gospel account, the the rich man is seen suffering in hell and realizes he has five brothers. And he implores Abraham, who apparently he can see over in the place of blessing. He's in the place of torment, but he can see over there Abraham and Lazarus. And he can see them over there and he implores Abraham, please send Lazarus to my brothers. And listen to the conversation that takes place then. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, they have the Bible. Let them, let them listen to that. But the man kind of argues with Abraham and he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, um, or no, he, he argues with him, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he says to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And Jesus not just gives us an account of these two and, and the contrast between the two, but he gives us a general principle. And the principle is this. If you come across someone that won't believe the word of God, and they say, well, I'm going to have to seek some kind of sign. Why aren't you doing miracles? Why don't you raise my, my mother from the dead because I just lost my mother? And if your gospel's any good at all, you'll bring her back. Understand this. If they don't believe the word of God, they're not going to believe if you raise someone from the dead right in front of them. 
And this is what Jesus is saying here. It is the Word of God that brings faith. And sometimes the miraculous there in the book of Acts and with the apostles accompanies that. But if they'll not receive the Word of God, they will not believe if someone comes back from the dead. After all, isn't that what Jesus did? He came back from the dead, and yet there are still many who will not believe. The healing and the resurrection were done to reinforce the message. And once the message was recorded, so were they. It's about the Word of God. It's the Word of God that converts. So back to what we're saying here about healing. Um, I want you to see the purpose of the sign was to testify to the life-giving power of the gospel. And here it is accounted in the Word of God for all of us to see as we saw it here today. Now that brings us to our third thing here. We said there's a progression. There's a progression from healing to resurrection. And uh, as we saw in John eleven twenty five there, and on to salvation, which we're really going to talk to much next time. If there is a, but there's this miracle of salvation is a far greater miracle. It's a greater thing that God has done. If Jesus had come and healed every disease of every human being on the planet and raised all the dead, only to die again. Understand that's nothing compared to the eternal life that he offers those who believe. Think about this. Millions upon millions have been moved from death to life by the gospel. Not just the rest of their life, but life eternal. That is immeasurably greater than putting someone's death off a while because as far as we know, everyone raised from the dead in the Bible except Jesus Christ went on to go ahead and die a natural death. None of them are alive today. But yet, those that believe are eternally with God. I see how Peter's journey points us toward the gospel in this way. There's a great act of healing, a resurrection, then salvation, going wholesale to the Gentiles that we'll talk about next time. And we'll focus on that salvation. It's gone out into all the nations and blesses us to this day as Peter continues his ministry. But for now, I've got some encouragements I'd like to, to send you away with. Um, first of all is this encouragement. Come to Jesus Christ for life. There is no other way to be saved. God has provided no other way for salvation other than Jesus Christ. It's so important to understand that. There is no path so pure as to make you qualified for God, for we all have sinned, and the perfect love and justice of God would require that that sin is dealt with. And the only way it can be dealt with is on the back of Jesus Christ upon the cross. It can only be dealt with there. And then our burden of sin is put upon him. His righteousness is put upon us that we may be with God. So there's no path we can walk so pure as to earn eternal life. There is no sin that's unforgivable. And I'll say this, there's, there's no sin that's unforgivable. We saw that in a, earlier in the chapter, in chapter 9, where this Saul, who was effectively approving of the murder of God's people, 
was saved. I want you to really let that sink in because not only was he uh, guilty of murder by being an accessory to it, but it was the murder of a man, Stephen, who was perfectly righteous, standing up and proclaiming the truth of God. I don't think there can be a higher crime that anyone listening to this has done. Now, no matter how bad you think your crime is, it can be forgiven in Jesus Christ. And whatever your crime is and whatever your horrible secret sin is, we can probably find a believer who's done the same thing that God has delivered into salvation. There is no sin too great. And there is no path so pure as to earn salvation. Only Jesus Christ can save. Now, if you already have salvation, this is an encouragement not to come to Jesus Christ for life the first time, but continue it. Make it a continuous act. Make it a habit in your life to bring all things to him. He made a promise that everyone with a burden could come to him and he would take their burden and he would put his yoke upon you a yoke which is light and easy. He'll take that burden upon himself and he'll carry you through. So make it a habit of your life. Whatever your burden is, bring it to the Lord Jesus Christ. And and can I say, bring it to him with a fellow believer in Jesus Christ. For our prayers are more powerful in number. As we pray together for things, those are the prayers that I guarantee are going to be answered because they will be in the will of God. We will balance each other out. We will hold each other accountable. and We will pray together because that's what God has designed is the church to love one another. This is what the church was made for. And you will find help that you need here in this world now. So come to Jesus Christ for life and also bring the hurting to the church. Now by this, I don't mean just bring them to the building. There's something about church doors that is a profound barrier to those who are not in Christ. I mean, bring them to your friends who are believers or take your friends to go see them and go with them and give them the gospel of truth and find out what their problems are and pray with them about their problems. But most importantly, pray with them for their salvation. This is how Jesus will build your local church is through these one-on-one connections. These days, it is highly unlikely that people are going to come through your doors and be converted. You must go to them. Bring the hurting to the church. Bring the church to the hurting. Bring the sorrowful. Bring the addicted. Bring those who are enslaved in sin. No matter how bad it is, Jesus Christ can deal with it. He is their only hope. The world will only provide them with worldly advice. When they go to the world for help, the world will just switch out their problem with another and switch out their addiction for another. They will only find true rest in Jesus Christ. If it's not of Jesus Christ, it is of the world and is under the control of the evil one. Don't let your loved ones be led astray. Bring them to a brother or sister in Christ. That's how it works. And you can bring them the hope of eternal life. 
And then finally, pray for opportunity and faith. And you might be thinking right now, you know, I don't know anybody that really is in that kind of situation or has a burden or anything else. Pray for opportunities and faith and one's going to come across your path very quickly. Because here's the thing, Jesus said, whatsoever you ask in my name, this I will do. And in my name means according to my will. And let me assure you, the will of Jesus is that you would minister in his name, that you would share the gospel message, that you would help the hurting, that you would have the compassion that he had to preach the good news. Pray for that. Pray for that in connection with other believers. Pray together for opportunity and pray for the faith to act on those opportunities. And let's pray for that together right now as we close. Father God, we thank you so much for this great message. We see you intersecting the lives of needful human beings. And Lord, I pray that all listening will bring their needs and their burdens to you. And I pray, Lord, that all of us would then seek to help others with their burdens as well. Lord, I pray that you will give us the opportunities to make you known to somebody. And I pray that when that opportunity arises, you'll grant us the faith to act. And we will act and we will tell them the truth. And we will embrace them with the love of Christ. And Lord, I pray that you will be known and glorified through it all. For that is our goal, that you be lifted up. That as many people as possible know you and know the truth. Lord, we pray they're set free. We thank you for all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope that's been helpful to you. Thank you for being with me. I hope you enjoyed this scripture as much as I did, the beautiful things that God is doing through his church, uh, even to this day, is accounted there. I want to encourage you to contact us. If you have any questions, concerns, need help finding a church in your area, you can email me directly at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com or you can go onto our website at whitesrun.org. You can learn more about us. And I encourage you, uh, even if you have objections, if you disagree with what I've said, make me prove it from the scriptures. Uh, if I said something that maybe I didn't support with the scripture properly, challenge me on that. And we'll have a discussion and, and we'll both come out of it growing and, and closer in the Lord. And so I encourage you, take hold of this material, study it for yourself, search the scriptures to see if these things. God bless you.